0: I can pretty much play any song on the piano from memory in any key and, and sing it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a, I am ai think if, I, if the hedge fund thing doesn't work out, I'm going to play piano in a piano bar. <laughs> if you want to stand out from the crowd,
1: it requires a unique approach to life and business. An approach that is aligned with your personality and that goes against the herd or the trend. At times, it will expose you and make you vulnerable to the public, and at times, it will make you look like a hero. Deep down, it's about being a contrarian. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged.
0: Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, Veteran Hedge Fund Manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Worse than champ at helping you predict the future. Hmm. Very interesting.
1: Now, I picked up somewhere that kind of your general philosophy that you talk about is that when people trade using their instincts, that behavior becomes predictable and that's what you can then exploit. But my question is, in the last five or ten years, more and more computers get involved in trading. And I just wonder whether this, these instincts and behavior and predictability of trading and markets, are they impacted with less and less decisions possibly being made by humans and more and more being made by computers, who obviously behave differently?
0: That's a very good question. Uh, part of the answer is we we already discussed with regard to the cognitive biases that yeah. are, that people fall prey to when they use quantitative strategies, which can be just as significant things like trying to allocate to the strategy that's doing the best recently. That's yeah. that's that's a consensus bias, you might say. Um, and of course, when it's spread over a lot of managers, you get a, a very, very big tendency to do what's working recently just as you would discretionarily. Um, and things like the types of strategies you employ quantitatively, that too are, is subject to cognitive biases. We have certainly observed changes in the market. You, you know, you, any close... Reading of the of the intraday data will show that. However, we are still finding tremendously interesting systematic strategies. Is it as simple as it used to be? No, but the effects are still there, and for better or for worse, there are still plenty of opportunities. And frankly, I think it's not so much the change in markets that has occurred by the increase in computers. It's actually been the change in markets by the increase in government intervention Mm -hmm. that I feel has really influenced the data. Because when we look very closely, it looks like QE has been the the determining factor of the performance of certain kinds of models, rather than a slow degradation. When markets are volatile, like what we just saw in September, October, November, or January of last year, and you can just go back at each burst of volatility, it really does appear that, particularly during those periods, that same sort of instinctive behavior is still there. I think some of it may have to do with the fact that there's still a very, very large fraction of participants who are subject to the same issues that they always have. They have to get out of losing positions because they don't want to show it on their balance sheet, they, or they have a firm rule that when you lose X percent, all of these things, again, subject to cognitive biases of both them and clients, tend to... Uh, T- tend to make markets still susceptible to them. Mm. Finally, there is the tendency of clients to invest and pull money from strategies, even quant strategies, that are performing and not performing. So the whole short-term trading space has contracted tremendously over the last five years. In 07, 08, short-term trading had about a twice the sharp of trend following, mm. and everybody piled into it. Well, certainly that's been the most out of favor strategy, let's say through the end of 13, and it's much smaller. So I think there are still a lot of opportunities out there. And again, because of the diversity of different things to do in the short term, you don't all have to be on the same trend, the one big fixed income trend or dollar-yen trend. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Every manager has unique solutions. So the niches are more refined, like in, a, like in, an, in an ecological system. There are a lot of different animals filling lots of different niches versus one very True. common animal that eats up all the easy-to-get food.
1: <laughs> True.
0: In, in, in your world, the short-term
1: world, um, I mean, is model decay a big issue? I mean, do, do these models stop working and then you have to constantly find new ones to replace them in order to keep up?
0: There, there definitely is some model decay. One problem that I think is uh, a, a problem that one has in making the decision, do you pull a strategy, very much like the problem you have in question, do you pull a manager from your portfolio, hmm. is that that decision itself is subject to cognitive biases. Yeah. So we have tried actually to, quantitate, to, to quantify that decision-making process. And that's a difficult question to quantify because really it, it some of it is much more complicated than is it performing or is it not performing. But we do believe that there are ways to do it and ways to let the computers figure out how to allocate as well as um, how to pull strategies as well as how to allocate the strategies. So I guess I could say we try to quantify even that piece of the strategy.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. let's move on to sort of the heart of of what you do namely the the trading program itself and I know you've already sort of uh, talked a little bit about it um, but uh, you know the diversified program tell me a little bit more about you know from a top-down point of view why you've designed it the way you do I mean you talked about some families you talked about sort of different time frames, 60 plus uh, different trading rules. talk to me about, why it's been structured this way? What's the rationale behind that?
0: Given that we have focused the mission of the business on providing diversification and protection, I guess it's not surprising that we apply that same idea to the strategies that we employ. Sure, We are trying to do a lot of different things to have them be as different as possible and to allow them to operate effectively in harmony with each other. Mm -hmm. So in the design of the program, we have tried to think about some issues of some interaction effects regarding risk management. We've looked at offsetting of trades and how that is important in reducing costs. We've looked at the, uh, the tendency of models to perform or not perform at certain times, the tendency of types of models to perform and not perform at certain times, and also to make sure that when we do this, we don't. Believe our back tests quite as much as one might if you had a pure quant approach. I think sure. having some experience in, you know, again, I like to talk analogously in manager selection, you realize that you can create four and five sharp portfolios of hedge fund managers every day of the year. But when you actually allocate to those managers, you are not going to get that four and five sharp. And you're probably lucky if you get a one sharp out of a five sharp portfolio. The same thing is true in, in in the models that we use and how we've structured the strategy. We've tried to use models that contain interesting ideas at their core that we believe in, that we're going to stick with, that we think should be robust, that are as elegant and I don't want to say simple, but they're not over-parameterized. and to be to not to not uh, force our own tinkering and biases onto the approach. So what I believe we have right now is a group of nine different styles, as I mentioned in the timeframes, ranging from minutes to weeks that complement each other and each of them representing a different way to think about the markets.
1: Can you give me an example? I mean, uh, what what's a, what's a way to think about the markets?
0: What I mean by that is a, one of the theories that we believe in is that the recent path that a price has taken is highly influential of what happens next in right. the in the mean that one achieves, in the shape of the distribution, in the direction of the path and the tendencies that that path has. So when we think about what makes our styles of trading different, we're thinking of how different types of paths, be they you know, strength of momentum or mean reversion after an, a market becomes oversold. The paths that get us to those conditions have a certain consistency and that's what makes a style of model for us. So we're, it's a type of effect that we're capturing in each one of our models that, that defines each style.
1: And is the parameter set for each of these models are they fixed or do they somehow go in because you're saying that the you know the reason history is very important about you know what's going to happen next i mean do they go in and kind of uh recalculate re you know calibrate um, parameters in order to best fit in with the current environment even though the objective and the the uh, the role it plays won't change but maybe it needs to sort of gradually uh, adjust itself or is it just completely fixed parameters until you decide to change them?
0: I I think the best way to answer that is there are elements of both. We have pieces of our strategy that are adaptive. We have pieces of our strategy that are really meant to be relatively static and effects that we believe in, even if they're not working, we still want to apply them um, with the idea that there's a mean reversion and that even when something hasn't done particularly well, it's still important to have in the strategy. Very much analogously to why it would be important to have things that are risk on in 2008, even though it's had its worst year ever, or why it's important to have things that are not risk on after the last five or six years of risk on in a more diversified portfolio. So we think about things that way too, but at the same time, you do want to react to what the market is giving you and what changes have occurred. Sure
1: you have three categories. You have the sort of the very short-term trades. You have the sort of uh, within a week kind of trades and then you have the longer-term trades. And you have a certain allocation, I'm sure, in terms of risk to these uh, different um, categories. Does that, do these sort of allocations of of, uh, exposure, do they change automatically or is that something, again, that you set and say, right, we want to be you know, 40% of this or 20% of that?
0: It's, again, a combination of both. There is okay. there is a fixed initial allocation and then it varies beyond that quantitatively. All right. How many markets do you actually uh, trade across? Uh, I think it's 54 right now okay. is the current number. Okay. The, the, the markets that we trade are the most liquid markets in the world. There's no emerging markets. There's nothing that... We, as a short-term trader, you're very focused on... Your opportunity set divided by your trading cost as a as kind of your magic number. The opportunity set is how much you can trade and how much does the market move. And the cost is your your commission cost and even more important, your market entry and exit cost.
1: Yeah. You have you mentioned you have a certain sector allocation as my understanding is that it's you you use a pretty even distributed sector allocation between sort of the four main asset classes fx interest rates stocks and commodities i almost know the answer to 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 to, to my question here but why do you choose that completely 25 percent to
0: each i'm kind of curious what, what based on what I've said so far let's let's see if I'm getting my message across. what is my answer
1: <laughs> Well I guess the answer is that we just don't know where it's going to be and therefore we need to uh, not try to uh, be too clever about uh, these things
0: so to speak exactly yeah. a, having a certain humility as to what is going to work and versus what has worked in the past is very very good portfolio wisdom I think in you know again always analogously to the problems that we all face in constructing, multi-manager and multi-asset portfolios that I have in managing my own assets that any investor in CTAs and hedge funds and traditional has in creating um, in, in creating portfolio. It's very, very important to say not what has worked the best in the past, but be humble about one's ability to predict the opportunity set and what will happen in the future. And most of all, to avoid the common and instinctive reaction that your brain puts you in, which is that the current conditions are the best representation of the future and the best predictor of the future. That is really not the case in markets. And believing that can get you into a lot of trouble. Mm. It's my view that the last five or six years are probably the worst predictor of the next five years because there's been an external force all the liquidity and lack of volatility associated with it being pumped into the market so when we look at markets we are not trying to predict what is going to make money in the future over the next two years based on what has made money in the last two years yeah i well, think what, what, one of the most interesting conversations i had with a manager was uh, another manager was back in the mid-90s i was sitting with some folks at ahl at their at their offices in london and we were both lamenting the fact that it, it's been very, very difficult to trend follow in equities. And I remember very distinctly they said, I forget who it was, it might have been David or, or Adam, um, but I, uh, someone said, we trade it even though it hasn't made money ever. And that's exactly what we do as well. We both agreed that it was important to trade things that have not been particularly successful. Hmm. If you look at the last couple of years, what had the best trend? Dollar yen. When was the less trend in dollar yen? Sure. Probably 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it's was. it been really a, uh, a stretch to keep that market in your program if you believe that what has made money will continue and what has not will continue not to. Mm-hmm. Um, British Pound has been fantastic. I don't think anybody's made money in British Pound since Soros did in 92, <laughs> but, but that's been great lately. And yeah. it, it's just, it's, you have to be humble and it's very, very hard to predict. And in our sector allocation, we have tried to uh, focus on that. Sure.
1: Well, I'm glad I passed the test, but more importantly, I, <laughs> I, I, I think you, I think you, you, you stress an important point, and that's also in the sense. I mean, how do you convince, um, you know, someone to to look at it this way and say, well, you know, even if it hasn't made money for ten years, we're still going to trade it. I mean, again, for the people sitting outside looking at these strategies, wanting to make a decision you know it's 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 hard work sometimes i think for them to really understand uh, you know why we do what we do and this is why i think that the, the stories behind these uh, are much more important because you don't really understand the numbers that people see or they they, they present unless you understand the story and their thinking so uh, exactly. i appreciate that now tell me a little bit about your you know your your system in the sense that you have this kind of 10 step process to you know from idea generation to actually implementing something in a system just talk to me a little bit about that what's the the thinking about going from the initial stages uh, to to uh, hopefully end up with something that you can trade
0: i think the the goals of our research process in its des- which is designed to create viable robust strategies that succeed over the long term is very much the same as the way one would approach any sort of good scientific process. And the, the beginning of a good scientific process is having a good hypothesis. And what's a good hypothesis? A good hypothesis is one that is extremely falsifiable. So the, the classic example is all swans are white. Well, that's easy to falsify if you come up with a black swan. And that's what the, the original black swan idea was, sure. that it's an easily falsifiable hypothesis. Um, so we prefer highly statistically significant, very frequent uh, observations in, our, in things that occur a lot rather than things that occur very rarely because we can easily tell when something has stopped working. So we to falsify one of our trading strategies, it has to be statistically significant in, say, actual use or in actual use for a certain time period versus what it previously had done. So rather than favoring strategies that you might have to wait 20 or 30 years for the trend of the century to make all your money, we'd like to have strategies that are give you enough observations that you can really start to see when they're working, when they're not working and ask why and see good statistically significant answers. So falsifiability is is very, very important in our research process. The second idea is parsimony. We wanna have as simple an idea as we can possibly get away with before it becomes trivial. And this is something we've really learned over time. The simpler, the better. It is so easy. To fit the data, the data is just waiting to have the the, the models just squeezed out of it with enough variables. And I, I mean, I remember I spent a year or two working with neural networks back in the '80s, right when they were popular. Sure. Yeah. And you know, the, the neural networks are the world's greatest data fitting tool by definition. They can fit any data. That's the whole point. Sure, you give it enough nodes and enough freedom, and bang, you got a beautiful matching of the historical data. Of course, it never generalizes. Sure. So, we have really tried to focus on parsimonious ideas, very, very simple, the kind of thing you can just take a couple of sentences and explain, not complicated parameter sets. So, the third one is robustness. We are looking for things that are as consistent as possible across markets. Now, this is something that not everybody does. we believe that if what we are finding are things that are true about the way people approach markets then it should be true in whatever market we try it on be it google or soybeans or dollar swiss or two-year mm. and ideally what we're what we're looking for are things that are very very consistent across asset classes and across all 54 56 markets that we that we test them on mm. That gives you a large number of observations. A lot of people don't do it that way. A lot of people have specific systems by market, by direction, and that's okay too. There's there are a lot of different solutions to this problem. Sure, um, but that's how we do it.
1: When when you and I, you know, I agree simplicity, uh, you know, often leads to, to more robust uh, outputs in, in in the long term. So, but looking at all of those things, trying to, uh, you know, determine what. If I, in lack of a better word indicators to to use in order to uh, describe that are there anything that you've found that you generally think works better when you want to achieve that kind of thing some kind of a, a favorite indicator that actually um, is usually more robust than others when it comes to trying to do things in a simple way
0: well if i if I'd found the holy grail I certainly wouldn't be discussing it in a public forum no, like this. no. So I, I hope you will uh, if i demur on that particular uh answer do sure. we have a do we have a few a few things that we really feel are the most important things to look at yes sure okay. <laughs> that's fine I, I i also want to point out one more uh, aspect of our research that i think is very, very important, and again, completely based on good scientific research in general. And that is causality. The, the final piece of what we do is that everything that we try has to have some relationship that we can understand to what we're trying to predict. So the, the relationship of the independent variable to the dependent variable should not be some magical, unknowable relationship that just happens to work, but something that we really believe in. So, mm. you know, as, as, a, as a toy example, of course, this is absurd, but sure. if someone told you that the phases of the moon, that when the moon was in a, a, a gibbous waxing, I don't even know how they call it, <laughs> or, or whatever, <laughs> you can see how much I know about astrology, sure. um, then, that, then the stock market is, performs 3% per annum better than when it's a waning crescent. Right. Well, that I, what's the causality? Sure. It might be an incredibly high correlation, but there's no reason that I can think of that there should be causality there. Sure. Um, but a lot of what passes for technical analysis, I think, fails that test, that you don't really know why a market should do it. And you say, well, the, and of course people say, well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That, that's not enough for me. Right. I want to understand why a market's doing it and believe that before I even test the hypothesis. And that's a very, very good way to begin scientific research in all aspects. And I, frankly, I think it's a very good way to run one's, uh, un, un, to believe or not believe in certain things. I have a particular view on global warming based on its uh, causality and falsifiability, but we'll leave that one out for now. Sure, sure. No, that's fine.
1: Just our curiosity, in terms of, um, you know, so there are obviously certain ways to get into a trade. Getting out of a trade, I mean, do you believe in... Stop losses, is that a philosophy that you subscribe to, stop profits, uh, or the signals have to change sort of direction, or how how does that work in
0: in, in your part of the world? That's a very good question. I think one answer is that short-term traders typically don't have much impact of stops. As long as you're getting out of most of your trades or all of your trades in a very short amount of time, it pretty much doesn't matter what you want to do intraday because the fact is during the catastrophes, when you really wish you could get your stops hit, you're not going to be able to. And of course the, the prime example of that is nine 11, where all the sell stops in the world wouldn't have helped you when that second plane hit. Sure. Um, and the, you know, even just in, in October of, uh, uh, of this year, when we had that enormous intraday fixed income rally, you were going to get filled right on the high, no matter what your, your buy stop was if you happened to be short that day. So my view is you pretty much have to take positions that you're willing to take an event risk on, no matter what that event is, and be able to come back and trade the next day. And you know, if you're going to be long the stock market, you have got to be willing to take a 5 or 10% loss in the stock market, on intraday with sure. no warning and have no ability to get out. And that's what happens fairly regularly. So mm. for short-term traders, just getting out of everything serves as your stop. Now, that having been said, we actually do have uh, on, on on our trades a, a, a catastrophic exit point. It's not hit very, very often. Sure. It's our hope that maybe it'll save us a little bit, but we don't really rely on it. It occurs very, very rarely. In terms of exit, for us, the, the exits of a trade are... Tied in with the entries, we're in a trade for a particular reason, with the exit in mind as part of the reason that we're doing the trade. So okay. we use all variations and a number of others of what you've mentioned, sure. and the uh, the interaction effects of all of these models is actually very very important. How the exits of one model affect the entries of another, and and and. And so on. Sure.
1: Now you know uh, that certainly in 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 trend following, I think a lot of people over time have articulated that position sizing is actually quite an important element of the success of trend following over time, and and um, and just how the positions are sized based on volatility and all of these things, which. You know, to people doing it, maybe seem trivial, but maybe for people who are not that uh, into it, uh, is is a, is a slightly different concept. But in the short term space, does position sizing play as important a role? Um, do you think, or on on or, or not so much?
0: I think it, a, it it certainly impacts your volatility, and I think the. Having a good understanding of covariance and volatility in your position sizing and how your models take positions and when they're going to get out, it certainly helps. I don't think that because you're, you're dealing with fairly small moves mm. that occur in a day, if you happen to overtrade by 20% on one position, sure. it generally won't have that big an impact because there's so many positions that over the course of a whole year are going to add up to your return. So any one position you have, if you make a mistake and you're 7% over or trade only 80% of it, sure. It it is impossible for it to have a material impact. Sure. Now obviously if you're going to trade for a year and you have three or four big positions and you miss 20% of a big position, then that is a big issue. Yeah. So I think it I think the bigger each individual position is, relative to your total return, the more important it is to size it exactly right. I think short-term trading, generally, it's, it's possible to get a reasonably good estimate of volatility. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job of keeping our volatility exactly where we want it to be, um, which, by the way, is about a 16% or 70%, 17% annualized. Okay. Um, and we know exactly what to do to keep it there. And we know exactly what our risk is, and of course, it's only a, it's only a measure, though. It doesn't help you when, you know, you have a potential nine eleven on any given day or a flash crash. Those those are unpredictable events, and you just have to assume that your risk is only one way of taking the temperature of the market and be willing to take a certain amount of unexpected volatility. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. The next topic, I just have a couple of questions uh, to actually, it's, um, I call it trade implementation, but we've already talked a little bit about it, but it's, it's actually um, also, um, I I ran into someone that you, uh, that you may know uh, here in Switzerland, and I'll just say his first name. He's he's called Matthias, and he uh, okay. he and he I think you've met him a few times. Um, and um, he 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 sent me a question uh, today because I mentioned that I had the the pleasure of speaking to you, and and he he sent me a question. It was a little bit about slippage. I mean, for a short term manager, how often do you have to improve or rewrite uh, sort of your execution? models or systems or code in order to keep up and keep slippage to a minimum.
0: We moved to algorithmic trading about 10 years ago and now almost 100 is probably 99% of our orders are done by our algos and they're all done immediately when the signals come up and are sent directly to the algos for execution. Mm. We have a very very careful measurement of our implementation shortfall based on what we believe we should be able to achieve. Of course, arrival prices, one benchmark one can have, but there are others too, and it gets actually rather intricate and arcane the different ways of measuring uh, what your slippage actually is. One of the things I've always uh, pointed out to people is that slippage is actually the flip side of performance, that when you're performing really well and your models are really smart about which way the markets are going to go, you're gonna get worse slippage, and that might be okay. Mm. Whereas if you're always wrong and you're 100% accurate, you can have tremendously fantastic uh, be, uh, slippage and have almost no implementation shortfall whatsoever, but you'll be 100% wrong on every trade. So there, there's a balance to be had. Um, that having been said, the, uh, the models that we use, we, we have two guys that focus exactly on that. That's all they do. And they are very, very carefully evaluating our performance of our algos in each market. And we believe that we've been able to keep up. The, The numbers suggest that we have not had any decay in our algos. In fact, we think we've improved it over time.
1: topic is one of my favorite topics, uh, and it's, it's risk management because I think it's such an important uh, part of, uh, of of what we do. And um, I just wanted to ask you, sort of broad term, how do you define
0: risk? What what is risk to you? I think volatility is one synonym for risk. Mm-hmm. I think there's different aspects of risk that go beyond that. There's you, know, you can have a very very quiet program with liquidity risk and you have a left tail that doesn't appear until you, you, until you absolutely need it. I think people learned that in 2008 that just volatility wasn't enough. As long as you're in the most liquid markets and they're open almost all 99.99% of the time to 100% of the time, then volatility starts to be a closer measure to what your risk actually is, at least in terms of your static position. Mm. There's also the question of what you're going to do. Your risk is not just what you have, because maybe if there's an event risk situation, sure, but there's also what are you going to do. If your strategy is going to hold for an hour and get out, that's very different from a strategy that's holding for six months. So that affects your, should affect your, your uh, estimation of your risk. There's covariance. So it's not just what's going to happen, but how confident are you that the risk that you've calculated will continue to be that risk if the correlation of, say, stocks and bonds goes from minus 0.4, minus 0.6 in a shock event to plus 0.4 in a taper tantrum or something like that. So you have to be aware of the limitations in both the variance and covariance. How much can those change? How volatile and how much much can the interaction vary of, of markets to each other? There's systemic risk. There's What do you do if your lines are severed to your, to your, uh, executing brokers and you can no longer, or the exchanges in our case, and you can no longer, uh, execute your strategy. Mm There's, oh, there's all, I mean, you you can just go right down that, down the the list of potential risks and and it ends up being a big DDQ, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, the risk of someone stealing your strategy, the risk of someone front running your trades because they've, they've, uh, been able to figure out what your strategy is. I mean, I I heard someone that was making money from front running the trades that they'd one of the major CTAs who you have interviewed um, that the, uh, the person had been so forthright about their strategy that this gentleman had made money just front running the trades of this manager. So there's like a publicity risk. So I I hope you don't mind if I'm being a little cagey about what we're actually doing and how we do it. No, absolutely. Um, So, so there, are, I guess the short answer is there's a lot of definitions of risk, and it's it's really a, a very very broad and intricate topic. That merely a var is just the first slice through sure. a very complicated uh, situation. Sure.
1: Now you mentioned in your documentation sort of that, and and I, I honestly I don't know whether this is something that's being used on a regular basis or not. But you you mentioned the the fact that from time to time one needs to step in and use discretion to reduce risk how how does that how does that work at the same time as trying to be non emotional about these things and so that would be kind of one question and the other question i have is have you have you measured whether these uh sort of manual changes if we call it that or overrides whether they actually help or, 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 or deter performance uh, over time?
0: We've gone through a number of phases of our use of discretion. I think the trend has been downward. Right. And coming back to this aircraft metaphor that, sure. I, that I love to use, just as you know, a, a 747 in 1967 when it first came out, you pretty much had to fly the plane by yourself. Right. Now you pretty much just watch and it's almost a danger that the pilots can fall asleep <laughs> and, and, and in fact, their lack of flying experience can actually be an sure. issue. Sure. So that's really what's with, with us. We've tried to quantify almost a hundred percent. And whereas in the past, we've really tried to be a little bit more proactive and allow a lot more discretion in the timing of our execution, let's say, and, uh, and even in, in, a, even in some of the way we use some of the strategies in fact, back in the day. These days, I mean, I think there's just been one instance in the last two years where we have stepped in, and it was a very, very small change that we made. Sure. Um, the the one area where we think humans are pretty good at is recognizing the limitations of quant strategies. Right. And in, the, in this particular case, the limitation... And what we were concerned about was that the historical volatility of a particular market was not reflective of what was actually going on in the market. And in, in that particular day, something had really changed in its level of volatility. And we felt that the VAR numbers that our models were seeing and our whole position sizing algo was not reflecting of today's true risk. Sure. So we basically just turned the whole thing down.
1: Sure, sure. Makes sense. The next topic I wanted to jump to is obviously re- related to, to risk management. It, it's a little bit about drawdowns. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in, you know, what do you learn from going through a drawdown? Because, I mean, drawdowns are so difficult for investors to go through. And, and we talked about a little bit about that. But you as a manager, what do you take away from going through a drawdown? other than the pain
0: (laughs) (laughs) we certainly take that away i think the the experiences that we've had and we've had some some significant drawdowns every one of them has resulted in a far stronger program than we would had before it's like an annealing of the of the strategy a crucible Mm. where it forces you to examine every piece of your organization every piece of your strategy and say what do I want to be doing to avoid this? Is it appropriate to be making a change right now? Is, is this in this mission of the firm? And is this a, a, a strategy creep? Or is this uh, a change that would essentially make a material difference to what our clients expect? And, and just on and on. In, when I look over the course of 22 years, we've survived a number of significant drawdown.
1: Sure.
0: And part of the, the issue that we have is we have tried to be true to our mission of being negatively correlated, and we've worked really hard to do that. The reason that we were so good in 2008 left a, left us vulnerable in 2009 and beyond over the next few years when things just rocketed back up with a tremendous lack of volatility, which is the best way to describe the QE years. Sure, And it forced us in those years to develop ways of maintaining a, a, the Core mission of the firm to be protective, yet to do it without being as cost, uh, without spending as much money on losing trades to maintain the uh, negative correlation. Mm-hmm. And I think we have learned, unfortunately, through the uh, the the with the benefit of hindsight, but sure. through the crucible of our worst drawdown that we had through 2012, to become so much better at making money during a QE-type environment, yet maintaining the negative correlation that we always have provided. And we just had a great test of that in the last uh, 8 or 9% drawdown. That the equity markets had our models, did exactly what they were supposed to do. They made a tremendous amount of money on the downside. But then the market came rocketing back up sure. again in its typical fashion, at least for the last five or six years. And we, we didn't give back very much at all. In fact, yeah. I think already we're on new asset highs right now after... The, after the lows. So I feel very, very good that it, the experience of that particular drawdown has created, it, it, it exposed a part of our strategy that obviously with hindsight, we wish we had been able to change beforehand, but it certainly made us a stronger manager. Sure. And the fact that we've survived 22 years and we're still here in trading and have a, a very strong operation, I think we're doing that with a much stronger platform and a much stronger strategy than strategies that have not really been tested with their particular Achilles heel. Sure. On that point, something
1: I notice, and I, I really don't have perfect uh, insight here about uh, AUM, but I seem to get the impression that although you refer to a tough time and, and, and a big drawdown uh, a few years back. Um, you seem to have been able to maintain your asset base. And I would say that most people going through a drawdown of over a, a, a long period of time and, and with some you know uh, depth to it, probably most of them are out of business today. How do you do that, Roy? How do you keep investors in through a tough time?
0: I think we had really defined in advance for people that this was not, going to be a one and a half sharp strategy as long as the stock market didn't go down. Sure. We had prepared people for some volatility. And we also told people that if you want something that's going to protect you, it it shouldn't be the kind of thing that tries to ratchet down and if it has a two or three percent loss in a month, just shuts off. Because then you lose the potential that the strategy can really protect later on in the month, let's say. And you know, even October was a good example. We started off down. Yeah. And I think it was very good that we were able to continue to trade through the middle of the month when it got very volatile. So first is preparing people for what, could go, what can go wrong and you know, not believing that if you know, we had an eight-year run from 2000 to a uh, oh, uh, nine-year run from 2000 to 08, where we had a one, probably a one and a half sharp or almost two sharp and still with the negative correlation. But I don't think anyone believed in our operation that we are a 1.3 sharp strategy if we're gonna have five years of of volatility going down by ninety percent and stocks rallying three hundred percent. So mm-hmm. so there was some clarity with the clients. And I think also we had that people had made a lot of money with us for those so, previous years. So they were comfortable with the strategy and they believed in the core of the strength of the operation and the team was all here. And we had, you know, I think on every other aspect, we still had a the the operation that we had at our asset highs. Mm. We also demonstrated, I think, that it wasn't the fact that we'd grown that caused the drawdown. We had, I think, you know, pretty much our, our high NAV in assets was before the beginning of 2008, and then we were up 50 some odd percent sure. on that very, very, on the maximal asset. So we, I don't think people could say, well, they got too big, Sure, it wasn't that. So, there, so some of the normal reasons for people pulling money might not have been there. Now, did we have redemption? Sure, after you have a, as tough a time as we did, it's very, very hard for people to look at 90% of the managers in their portfolio making money every single year strongly as stocks rallied, and sure. then to have that lousy Niederhofer negatively <laughs> correlated showing up at the bottom. Sure. But I think we may be in the other end of that cycle right now, and you know it feels to me very much like it did in 2007, where there's incredible interest in this our strategy right now, mm. I think before the volatility really hits with the end of QE. Just like August 07 was kind of a shot across the bow of the 03 to 07 equity rally, August, October of, of this year, October 14, yeah. showed people what can happen in portfolios. I mean, the, the fund of funds index, if, if it had marked at noon, let's say, on October fifteenth, mm. it would have been down almost 5%, sure. which would have made this the worst month except for September, October 08, and August of 98. It was really that bad. Mm. And the same thing happened in August 07. The hedge fund and traditional investments were down tremendously, and it came all the way back and made a new high in October mm. that year. And then you know you know what happened next. Sure. So sure. that's where it feels like we are right now. And I think of people if, if we'd been able, and we have been able to articulate the reasons to invest in our strategy and why it's important to have this kind of asset, a negatively correlated asset with positive performance over time. Now is a time when people are going to start probably to come back that even have left, and we've already seen that. But it is, I think, something that we've always been clear about and perhaps avoided the catastrophic. Uh, existential risk of having this kind of drawdown where people thought, well, we weren't being true to our strategy that we've sure. somehow kind of shifted and et cetera.
1: Now you've clearly done a great job in, 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 uh, keeping investors uh, comfortable. Um, but what about yourself? How do you, how do you personally deal with, um, uh, you know, uh, a drawdown? How do you switch off emotionally? If I can put it that way, uh, to to make it easier because we we all know as managers it is it is tough in itself to go through the drawdown but it's even tougher when you when you know you're also you know taking client money uh, along for the ride so how do you balance that in in your personal life
0: that's a very good question I think it the I guess there's two answers. There's both a personal balance and you know how do you keep your business going sure. as well. And and I think as, as, for better or for worse, that's a related answer. If you're yeah. worried about the stability of your business and your ability to continue, then it certainly can add some stress and affect your decision making. Even you know after. 2009 we'd been in business 16 or 17 years and i'd had significant drawdowns before and i I was prepared for this it wasn't something that i never thought could happen Mm. and so to me it was okay let's sit know roll up our sleeves and let's figure out what's going on and i think we were a little bit too slow to react if i had to look back i think we really underestimated just how successful qe would be in raising asset prices and depressing volatility Mm. but that having been said having a great team and having a head trader who was really steadfastly with me and believing in the strategy and a lot of researchers who were working very, very hard certainly made it uh, a much easier experience on the work side. Mm -hmm. And I also have a very wonderful family situation too. My wife is incredible and I have beautiful, beautiful kids and you know, I I come home and they don't care if if I'm up a percent or down a percent (laughs) today or if I'm down 10 or up 10 on the year, they want to play with dad. So 's been a that's been a tremendous help I think in some of the tough times and so I think that that having been said the fact that we also did have an enormous year on you know uh, over two billion dollars gave me the financial stability sure. that I was never worried for even a second I mean I could have not a single client in the, sure. it, at all and stay in business for a hundred years if I wanted to so it's really not a uh, there was never an existential threat to the firm from an asset point of view. And I think that also, after it, it's easier to, to maintain stability and confidence through a drawdown when you've been in business 17 years sure. than it is if you've been, been in business two years.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, just a final question on, on this topic. I mean, is there anything out there that you see right now that might sort of keep you awake a little bit at night when you see the the world? Is there any risk in the system or anything out there where you say, you know, I wouldn't want that to happen overnight because, you know, we would suffer through something like that? I mean, because we all spend so much time on trying to mitigate risk, but but obviously we know that, that we can't mitigate all risks.
0: Normally I would have said here more government intervention. If you had asked me five years ago, I would have said just you know uh, an effort by the government to control the direction of markets, which would change the impact of the strategies, that, the success rate of the strategies that we employ, which are designed to capture the impact of individuals and systems and sure. things like that, the normal participants. However, I think what's happened is that there's such skepticism about government intervention at this point that the... Threat of a lot more of it is now starting to have the opposite impact. I think we first started to see that with Abe and his massive QE program there sure. in Japan, and I think, if, for example, if U.S. were to uh, vastly increase the and uh, uh, sorry, vastly uh, expand QE again from zero where they are right now, it would be seen as such a negative for the economy that it might actually have the opposite impact. Mm-hmm. So, I'm less concerned with. That type of uh, money printing, that type of intervention, a, a more direct intervention like making it illegal to sell the stock market the right. way they did it, the way they made it illegal to buy silver in the, in the 70s, you know, that obviously is something that keeps me up at night. And sure. of course, things like the potential for events like a terrorist attack that would just shut everything down and just be utterly catastrophic. I think that, that those keep everyone up at night, not just, yeah. uh, high, not just uh, short-term <laughs> managers. <laughs>
1: The next topic I wanted to touch upon is research, but I actually only have one question that I want to pose, and that is how do you measure the effectiveness of your research?
0: It would be easy to say does it make money or not, but there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Just like in portfolio construction, your best performers are not the only piece of your portfolio, and to think that you're, the smarter you are it's the, the, that the smart pieces of your portfolio are only the things that are going up is, I think, naive. So the effectiveness of our research would be, do we feel that our new strategies, let's say that we're using in 2005, perform better from five to eight than the strategies that we had in 2000? So mm. in that sense, the mix of the portfolios should, should continue to improve over time. Mm. Unfortunately, there's a huge confounding factor, which is the paths of, vol- of realized volatility. Is it a high vol period, a low vol period? Is it um, a very trendy period, a, very, a period of a lot of intraday reversals? So there are tremendous confounding factors. Unfortunately, therefore, my answer has to be it's a rather uh, qualitative and subjective assessment mm. as to the quality of research. I don't think pure quantitative results are... The whole answer obviously, that's a simple answer to it. You know, what is your sharp ratio? But sure. at the same time, what are you able to withstand in the future? How are you fulfilling your mission? As I said, we have made some sacrifices sure. in our own sharp ratio. We know we could have made more money had we added some more risk on, but we chose not to in order to maximize our alpha. And mm. um, so, if we continue to produce a significant amount of alpha and even better, an increasing amount of alpha. That would make me happier than just looking at performance.
1: Sure, sure, sure. I have another topic. I call it the business side of your firm, but it's not really sort of specific to that. But but there is one question I, I thought was would be quite interesting to hear your opinion about since you have studied the the human mind in, in detail. And it, it goes something like this. It's related to mindset. Now, you started out in 1993. And obviously, as a small manager, like all small managers, you probably had... Uh, little to lose, so to speak. So you go in and you you start a a business, you start your trading strategy and you have a certain risk tolerance, a certain risk profile. And then 10 years, 15 years, 22 years later you're very successful. You've made a lot of money, you have a big business, you have mouths to feed, you have clients, uh, significant clients to, to look after. How does this Change this success. How does that change your mindset as a manager when it comes to risk? Do you, despite having started the 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 brain, do you also become a little bit more risk averse in that sense because you have more to lose?
0: I think I perhaps unusually can say that there has been absolutely no change in our tolerance for risk and the type of models that we employ. And I think if you look at our quantitative statistics, there's, the proof is in the pudding. Sure. So w- it's true that a lot of managers, as they've grown, have gotten much less volatile. They're trading different mixes of assets. Their correlation to equities has grown. And we've talked a lot about that already in this interview, yeah. that that is a natural tendency. Yeah. And it's not just that stocks are going up. It's that managers want to provide that institutional longevity. Mm. We have set a very, very specific mission in the firm. And that is we are going to be consistently negatively correlated to the equity markets. And we're going to provide a 16 approximately annualized standard deviation to our clients, enabling us to provide not just negative correlation, but a significant amount of downside protection, not just plus 0.2% if the stocks are down 8%, but to make 5, 8, 10% in these equity drawdowns and have the ability to Essentially, be a heroic addition to a portfolio and be up 30, 40, 50, 60% in a big, big volatile year to really help people's portfolios. We started with that. We did do that in 97, 98 during some of those big drawdowns. The long term capital situation was enormous for our strategy. And it continues to be the case all the way through this uh, last month in August and October. So, I really can say with great certainty that. For better or for worse, our <laughs> risk parameters, our correlation, and my risk tolerance are exactly the same as they used to be. Right, and on day one.
1: Yeah, fantastic. What's the biggest challenge today? Do you think you know when you look at being a a manager in this space uh, and so on and so forth? What what do you think is the big biggest challenge that uh, that you and maybe the industry faces?
0: I think for us, the biggest challenge and one that we really try to uh, Face every day is continuing to come up with creative, interesting ways of improving the strategy without merely fitting the data more effectively. Right, and that's unfortunately or fortunately the very very same challenge that I had when I sat down in front of my computer and you know put the first opening brace (laughs) of the code that was then going to turn into our whole backbone. And in this was in October 1992. It's still there. It is exactly the same problem that we had at the beginning. Uh, challenge, I should say, not problem. Yeah. And it, it will never change. The nice part about it is you are constantly tested by the markets. Every day is different. There's Every year, every month, every single trading day gives you new challenges in ways to improve. You can learn new things from the markets every single day. And another and, and the very lovely thing or horrible thing about the trading world is that you really are judged objectively by your results and there are not too many fields where you can say at the end of the day this is how good i am this is how bad i am and the proof of the pudding is in our track record and what we've been able to do for people's portfolios sure
1: oh great um a couple more questions on this topic and then we go to the final section uh, roy if you could ask a question of my next guest you know peer-to-peer so to speak And let's just argument's sake say that the next guest was David Harding, which unfortunately it isn't. I still hope that he will (laughs) pick up the phone and and, and come on. But what would you like to ask someone like that who's been so successful in in this industry?
0: (sighs) Hmm, What would I like to know from other managers? Uh, am I wearing just my intellectual curiosity hat, or is this? More you can wear what, whatever hat you want. What, really, what are the most illuminating questions that one can ask a manager that you should be asking?
1: Well, that's uh, it part of the. Uh, that's part of the, the the next question, I would say. But but just specifically, if you had a chance to, uh, you know, sit down with, with 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 David Harding and and ask him a question that you thought was was interesting to you, um, what would it be?
0: Some some of the. More interesting questions that, that, that I'd like to know the answers to are really some of the things that you've asked. Have, have there been degradation of model versus actual performance over time as a result of factors like high-frequency trading and decreased liquidity? That'd be one. Um, I think a, uh, an interesting question to ask managers is you know, to, to really suss out who is a short-term trader, I like to suggest that people ask not what is the duration of your average trade, mm-hmm. but the duration of your average position. In other words, if you're long, how right. how long do you stay long until you go short? Mm. And that is a, a, a another way of saying what is the relative contribution of different durations to your strategy. Um, I think, honestly, the the questions that I that I have, I, I certainly respect tremendously what all the other I mean, you you have a a roster of superstars on on your program and i'm really honored to be part of this so i I would first say you know i am i am in awe of what everyone on this show has produced and david of course uh, perhaps without without equal sure has produced something extraordinary so the questions that i have for um for managers are things like how do you raise children with good values Mm. You know, uh, being being a person of, of wealth and success and with tremendous demands, um, mm-hmm. maybe things like personal asset allocation. What do you think about the world? Um, and uh, you know, how, what do you think of it? some some things about managing a business along the lines of what you've talked about? So sure. it's just really to compare notes and running significant operations and sure. uh, and and lessons learned. But I, I think some some of the challenges that one faces as as a as a Entrepreneur and hopefully a, a, an entrepreneur with success over time is are are more of the personal nature. Again, some of the things you've articulated. How do you what what makes you excited to go to work every day and uh, what what uh, what what sacrifices do you think one can avoid making with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah,
1: I don't know whether they was kind of in anticipation of my next question in this uh, area, but I I do wanted to ask you also. Uh, and maybe the answers is a little bit different i mean you've been in uh, hundreds uh, of due diligence meetings and and you've probably seen i, I might uh, be thousands or thousands <laughs> yes and and calls and what have you but what do you think investors are not asking you actually that they should be asking you when they come and and do their due diligence
0: i will tell you that I Again, my answer to that question is a lot shorter than it used to be. Yeah, I, I used to give actually a talk on on that very okay. topic. I, I literally could go on for a half an hour about that. <laughs> but <laughs> now, these days, people are getting a lot smarter about right. it. I think there's a lot more understanding of the space. Um, I think for people, the, the the most effective due diligence is typically from people that have actually tried to solve some of the problems themselves. So I always like talking to people who are traders or or model creators, people that have actually gotten into the data, and can really uh, understand some of the strengths and weaknesses of different approaches to it, and 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 almost speak the language. Mm. So I think uh, I, I i like to have I like to have people asking a lot about the models and things like that, and uh, really get into the the weeds of of model creation. Sure. Um, some of the <sighs> I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't want to even suggest too much about what's not being asked because I feel like these days people are asking it. So uh, okay. well, good. I, think, I think most people do a pretty good job. Sure. I think if I had one suggestion I would yeah. make is inc- still the incredible overuse of recent track record right? and also the tendency to pick all-stars mm. rather than to pick a portfolio of managers. Mm. And I, I think if there's one mistake that I've made – and learn not to make in our model creation, it's to believe our own bullshit a little too much, yeah. to, to put it mild, to put it bluntly. Sure. Um, and I think where we've really improved over time is to be very, very humble about what we can do. And I think that humility is a very good quality in portfolio construction and understanding that most of your managers are going to regress to the mean in their performance, no matter how good your due diligence process is, chances are the average manager that you pick is likely to produce average returns, and that if you structure your portfolio with that sort of humility and lack of expectation of outperformance, you actually end up with a program that a portfolio that's more likely to succeed better in the future. Mm. So, the simpler and the more humble, the better in portfolio construction.
1: Let's jump to the last uh, section, which I call uh, general and and fun, um, and uh, and so. It's well, there's probably...
0: nothing more fun than talking about yourself for
1: two hours. No, exactly. Yes, yeah. so, fascinating so for me. Good. Let's continue. <laughs> uh, in in a sense, uh, you touched a little bit upon it, but I do want to hear it in in kind of your 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 own words. I mean, clearly, you've been you know exceptionally successful. You build a great company you don't need to work another day in your life. But why do you keep doing it? Why do you wake up in the morning and feel the urge for, let me go into the office and continue to build my business?
0: I think there's a lot of intellectual satisfaction in my job that I'm not sure I would find anywhere else. It really does force me to keep my mind questioning and active and engaged with The world of macro and news, and then into the nitty gritty of individual system performance and statistics. And it provides a certain level of intellectual stimulation that I find very, very rewarding. And as a result, I love this. I love coming to work. I love the people I work with. And I love just sitting there in the trading room. I spend a lot of time there just talking to people about what they're doing and how to do it better and what's going on in the markets, what can we learn? And I think it, the markets provide a certain level of novelty and demand a certain level of attention and creativity that very, very few jobs do. So that, that's a big piece of it. Mm. I also feel like we're doing something good. I feel like we're by helping people's portfolios and in, in, in really providing downside protection at times, that feels really good. Mm. That, that The reason that people buy us we've actually been pretty good at doing for a very, very long period of time. And I felt like in 2008, we, we saved people's jobs, we saved people's portfolios, as we had many times before. And then one of the things I'm even most m- more proud is, it, right after Madoff, we got about a $600 million redemption because one of our fund of fund clients couldn't get out of their locked-up managers and they had redemptions, which they had to meet. Yeah. And we gave them $600 million and on a day's notice. And I feel like we did exactly what we were being paid to provide liquidity, protection, and, and essentially a, a daily liquid strategy that pr- protected my clients. So I feel like there's a tremendous amount of satisfaction that one can get from doing the job that we are supposed to be doing. Have we done it perfectly? Absolutely not. Sure. We will never do it perfectly. Have we, do I wish we would have been better than, of course, and that's what I'm here to do. Sure. But there's a lot of satisfaction that I get from staking out a particular mission, as we've talked about a lot, and really trying to fulfill it day in, day out, and I think getting better at doing it. It's constantly challenging. It's very, very exciting. And I get to work with really, really smart people.
1: Yeah. Have you always had the entrepreneurial gene inside you, um, do you think? Or did that come... Later well, you've
0: you heard when I was thirteen, I, yeah. I had a pretty successful business. That yeah, ended up that's putting, true. Yeah, I forgot about stuff. that. Yeah, and I had a couple even in college So I, yeah, I, I always have. And, yeah. Uh, so I, 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 love being uh, creating something and working hard to make something small into something really big and uh, successful and with a with a clear mission.
1: Was that in your family? I'm just curious. I mean, was that was you was your parents entrepreneurs or was it just something that 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 came through you, so to speak?
0: I certainly had the example of my brother, who had been uh, yeah. first in mergers and acquisitions, and then, as I mentioned very early on, in uh, in short-term trading in sure. the late '70s. Um, so he, so I realized that one could start a business. But in terms of computing, I was really the first in the in the family to go down the the <laughs> programming route. And I just I loved computers and what they could accomplish. And uh, I think you know even now the the code that we write here is. I think it's particularly good and fast, and uh, and does the job effectively. And some of the lessons that I've learned from being right in the in the heart of things at the very beginning has, have been very helpful in getting that to work. Mm.
1: If you are going to recommend a book for people to read that that you feel could improve sort of their knowledge about trading and so on and so forth, is there any one in particular that comes to to mind?
0: Well, the the classic. Books, you know, uh, Extraordinary Delusions and the Madness of Crowds and uh, Reminiscences of the Stock Operator. Um, my uh, my brother likes to recommend books on uh, turf betting. Um, the uh, But for me, I think the best book on trading is actually a book that's not about trading at all for the most part. And I think of it like the Bible. Right. In that sense that you can just open it to any page and you can just study it. And if you're thoughtful, you can probably come up with something interesting from every single paragraph of the book. And it's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. And it has very little to do about trading, a lot to do about the brain and how people think and how we don't think clearly, effectively, because of these cognitive biases. And you literally can open that book to any page and learn something about trading, even though 98% of that book has nothing to do with financial markets. Interesting. Interesting.
1: Based on everything you've learned, if you had the chance to go back and speak to your younger self 20 years ago, 25 years ago, what do you think you would have done differently, if anything?
0: I would say don't believe your own bullshit. Be humble. Don't. The simpler, the better. These are things I've talked about already in in this interview. I think the... The tendency of quants, the tendency of quant managers is to constantly try to improve and optimize and and go in the direction of additional complexity. Mm. And I think with a lot of good science and with good trading strategies, going in the opposite direction is actually the optimal path to mm. so simplify and favor robustness over the highest possible optimized result. Sure. So that's what, that's what I would tell my, my, my younger self. Sure. I wanted to ask
1: if you could share a, a fun fact about yourself, something that people don't usually know about you. And I will throw in one thing that I didn't know. Um, which is that you, your office were very close to being part of the movie Wall Street Two, so that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, happy to, you're, you're welcome to elaborate on this, but but I, I also wanted to see if there was a fun fact about you that people, even people who know you, might not know about you.
0: Well, just just a little aside about that movie. Sure. They, uh, they, we have a big video wall that has about 160 screens on it, and I, and that contains the displays of all of our strategies and markets, and it just gives us a very good visual reference of uh, what's going on in the world and with our own strategy. But I always tell people that this is the result of growing up without a television. <laughs> I did. So, so that's, that's one little fun fact that sure. I, I grew up without a television. But I think maybe a more, more interesting fun fact is that I think um, most people don't know, though anyone who's been to one of my parties does know, is that I can pretty much play any song on the piano from memory in any key, um, and and sing it. And so I'm, I'm I'm a I think if I if the hedge fund thing doesn't work out, I'm going to play piano in a piano bar.
1: The new Liberace, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, you know, before I you know go to sort of the last question, I do wanted to ask you one thing that just springs to mind here. you know. I struggle a little bit about reconciling the fact that you see managers who've been around for 20, 30, 40 years who have done well, yet their asset base is shrinking or it's not growing. And on the other side, and, and maybe it pertains quite a lot to some US firms, not that many as far as I can tell, uh, but certainly quite a few European firms and some of them certainly have been on on uh, a guest on my show. Have done very well in attracting assets. What do you? But where you can't really say that it's down to track record. You can't really say that one is better than the other. What do you sense from your experience, investors? Um, how should I put it? Why do some managers seem to attract more assets than others, even though then that their, their strategy and 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 maybe even their track record isn't really that different? Is there some other aspect of this whole process that we may not be focusing on today? And let me just throw in my, my, my own observations here. Very often when you come into uh, a manager's office uh, in, in one part of the world, uh, say the US, you get a certain feel for it. It's built in a certain way. It, it looks in a certain way. And then you come to London. And very often, they their offices also are built and look in a certain way, and they're very scientific. I mean, you see, com, you know, computers, banks of PhDs. It's very clean. It's very, you know, neat and tidy. Do you think that that basic and and I guess, frankly, and I'll be very uh, open about it. I spoke with uh, I spoke with Jerry Parker earlier today, and we talked about this aspect, and and um, and I was just you know I was just curious to find out. Whether investors, when it comes down to the decision, are influenced, do you think, emotionally by this neat looking streamlined setup that very often you see in, say, London, that that sways them in the direction of those kind of managers, even though deep down it doesn't matter what, how your office looked like.
0: That's a really good question. You're probably asking the wrong guy because I've never seen anybody else's office. (laughs) No, but you built your own office in a certain way, didn't you? I mean, you're you're, you're doing it maybe,
1: I don't know whether it's deliberate or not, but when people come into your office and they see 160 screens, it all looks very scientific. It probably looks like NASA's office as well. Um, Maybe that gives people some level of comfort that it's better than... You know, an office where people sit in a small corner, and maybe they don't have the
0: latest uh, computer. I don't know. I'm just curious. It's an interesting question. I, I will tell you that it was very helpful at the beginning. Right when I was, I had in the when we started, in it was a we we Paul and I and Jill and my ex-wife Kara were together in a room. We had about 15 computers around the perimeter of my living room, mm. and we had. A very very advanced operation for the time. we had real-time VAR, we had prices being fed in automatically and you know this for the early 90s it was, yeah. it, was the, uh, it was pretty high tech. And I think it was very helpful coming out of the box for people to see that we had tens of thousands of lines of code and a really robust operation, even though we happened to be in my living room and then clearly we moved very quickly and we got off to a very fast start. So it certainly helped these days, I, I don't know. i I think it depends on the strategy. look I, for for us, we really do need hundreds of cores and <laughs> sure. we, and a, we're you know short term trading three shifts. We need a lot of people and there have to be i t guys and and a lot of quants to run and, and create the strategy. Mm. We are not a discretionary strategy. We're not long- term trend followers which may be less inf- less in- intensive in terms of its needs and trading, let's say. But I think in a lot of ways, though, the, the, the office environment and the appearance of a manager can tell you a lot about the manager. For me, the way we designed our office was to make sure that everybody could see everything, mm-hmm. that it was very open. We, we even in the architecture, in the design process, talked about it was a marketplace of ideas, that it was designed to be a, a the shape of a, of a, of the agora. It was a, it was very much a, uh, a, an open area where people could co- come together and talk about the strategy. And there are other managers that have a different, more of a hierarchical approach, and probably their, their offices, uh, you know, that they would probably, uh, you can get a, a sense of their worldview and management style from that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a glass wall versus a, a, a thick wall that's totally soundproof and a door that's closed. My door is always open. It's completely glass, and I can see the trading room and all the screens from my office. Sure. Not everybody thinks about their strategy that way. So I think there may even be some hints that you can get about the strategy from the design. But I think a more likely answer is people that are very clear about what they're trying to accomplish, who can articulate the benefits of the strategy that are clearly providing the level of Institutional management that will give people comfort that there's a lot of openness that they have smart people not just at the very top but all through the operation that people understand what's going on that they're not um, they're they're not just peons and and, uh, and and secretaries that they're really providing significant value to the operation um, that that investors can talk to and I think the most successful managers are able to show that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate
1: that. That's that's interesting. Um, I asked you earlier today whether investors were asking the right questions. So obviously, I also want to make sure that we've covered all the ground uh, that we should. Is there anything you feel I've missed uh, that you would like to bring up? Uh, I just want to make sure that I've done justice to you and and, and to your, your business today.
0: I think I just want to talk a little bit about the question of downside protection. Mm-hmm. That is something that you know, I, I use the word negative correlation as a shorthand for providing downside protection. But it actually has to be more than just a negative correlation. You have to be consistently able to protect portfolios in order to really make a difference. And I think we have really made this a piece of the strategy that might make us, I don't want to say unique, but highly unusual and that we focus so hard on these particular periods. Mm. It's not something that falls out of the strategy accidentally, but it's something that from the very, very top down, as we decide what we're going to do, we are saying, how can we help a hedge fund portfolio? How can we help an equity portfolio the most? What, what will be the most beneficial to our clients? And that's an unusual way to think about the world, at least in our business, sure. because people perceive the allocation process as, all-star team. I have to be the best. I have to have the highest standalone sharp ratio. You get beta creep and short volatility creep. Mm. And that has worked phenomenally well for the last six years. I believe that we are at a, the most dangerous point that I have ever seen, because it has been the longest that I've ever seen mm. since there has been a true burst of volatility. Mm. There is incredible danger out there hiding in the weeds. And I believe that looking at the the It is the time at which the typical, most common investment strategy, which to look at, say, five-year track records, to have your portfolio increasing because of performance in the managers that have done well over the last five or six years. There's never been a time that I can remember in the 30 years that I've been doing this that what has occurred in the past has the potential to be so different from what occurs in the future and why diversification is so important right now. And I know this is gonna be on the internet forever, so we'll see And uh, to the ROI of 2015 and 2018 just how right I was. But if I have to make a prediction, I'm going to say that what occurs in the future is going to be ridiculously unpredictable from what we see right now and unknowable to a point that the most diversified you can get is the best way to survive it.
1: Yeah. No, I think that that's a very important message. And, uh, and I um, I tend to agree with you on, on all that. So uh, thank you for that. Now, um,
0: before well, I, we... Th- I also yeah, have to say yeah. one more thing. Sure. To anybody that's made it this far, <laughs> thank you very much for your attention i really appreciate that you care about what i have to say this much because i i, I admire you
1: <laughs> good yeah no I, I should thank every listener every time that they uh, get to the end of a, a two and a half hour interview <laughs> uh,
0: there should be a special prize at the end for <laughs> yeah
1: absolutely i need to find a sponsor for that actually that's a good idea anyway before we finish roy and let the 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 uh, the listeners get back to their normal uh duties um is there a, a good place for people to reach out to you and your firm and and learn more about it?
0: Sure. Uh, Certainly, uh, they can contact us. My email is royn at niederhofer.com. You can easily Google me and find the company. Call me. We're we're very, very open. We love to have people come in and talk with us. And, you know, even if they're not serious potential investors, I, I feel like I have staked out a role of, uh, I like to teach people about the industry for people that are new to managed futures and new to short-term trading. I, I love to talk with people that are just entering the space. And so I, I, I'm i absolutely welcome to have people come and visit and knock on our door and say hello. And see the 160 screens, which is That's a rare sight. So <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I, I, I hope that we have a pretty good view too, I guess you could say.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I might even take you up on that one day. But Roy, thank you so much. It's been, it's been fun. It's been great conversation. It's been incredibly insightful and it's been wonderful to, to, uh, you know, get a true contrarian, uh, you know, in, in the conversation and, and just see the world a little bit differently, which we can all learn from. So um, thank you so much. And I will say to the listeners, of course, that there will be plenty of uh, details uh, on the website in the show notes and uh, of course, all the things that Roy just mentioned about contact details. So, thank you so much, and um, you know, best of luck. And uh, I thank hope to knows, catch it's up been a with pleasure. you. Yeah, I hope to catch up in in the new year.
0: Likewise. Take all care. right.
1: Take care. Bye bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.